listening to One in Ten from National Children's Alliance. I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host. Join us as we engage in one-on-one conversations with the brightest minds in science, medicine, faith, communications, and the law. We'll discuss the path forward as we all work together to solve the greatest challenge one in 10 of our children face, child abuse. Today's episode is on the failure that leads to all others in institutional sexual abuse cases. I talked to Mary Graw-Leary, a former prosecutor and current professor at the Catholic University of America School of Law, about not just why child sexual abuse occurs, but why it seems to flourish in institutional settings. How can institutions prevent child sexual abuse? And when prevention fails, how must institutions respond? As a prosecutor, Mary spoke for victims, and she says institutional sexual abuse is a problem we know how to fix. The challenge is getting institutions to get serious about making the protection of children the priority. Mary, I know that you really started your work on the issue of child abuse as a prosecutor, and then now are teaching uh, students of the law in regard to these things. What brought you to this work in the first place? Well, um, when I was in law school, I knew that I wanted to become a lawyer that uh, had an impact on people's lives, and I knew I was interested in criminal law, and I had spent some time before law school working with homeless and runaway children, and part of the reason I had done that is because I thought if I became a prosecutor, it was really important to understand that everybody has a story and that many offenders, um, not all offenders, many offenders uh, come from um, backgrounds which are troubled. And so I thought it was really important for me to work with that population um, to be sure that's what I wanted to do. And what I found when I worked with that population is that uh, they all were victims. (laughs) They all were victims Mm. of crime. And there was nobody speaking for them. And so um, it really spoke to me about the power of uh, a prosecutor to represent people who are victims, and it was particularly powerful when you look at the child sexual abuse and child physical abuse context, because in that context, the adults in those children's lives who are supposed to be protecting them often have not done so, and so often The law enforcement folks involved in this case, the victim advocates, the people at the Children's Advocacy Center are the first adults who have actually demonstrated to these children that um, society can be good and we as adults can protect them. And so that was very compelling to me as an area of law to practice. So when you think about the way that your career has evolved since then, you know, you started out really representing, yes, the state, but the state's interest in a victim's experience. And now you're spending um, uh, time writing and thinking and teaching also about cases that involve institutions, you know, where an institution has failed as it relates to childhood sexual abuse. And, you know, in the media of late, we've had many, many, many examples of that, whether it's been the, you know, Larry Nasser case with Michigan State or the Sandusky case in Penn State or the USOC or the Catholic Church or the Southern Baptist or the Boy Scouts. And one of the things that I'm wondering, uh, when you look at all of these, 
Um, are there some common threads among all of these stories of institutional abuse? Yes, I think that's a great question, Teresa. And I would say um, it's important for us to distinguish sort of the question, and I realize you are doing that in the way you phrase your question, is not just why does sexual abuse occur in these institutions. As we know, sexual abuse occurs in every institution. Um, it crosses all racial, economic, uh, cultural barriers. Um, I think the question really is why does it seem that child sexual abuse in particular and sexual abuse in general seems to be flourishing in certain institutions? And when I've looked at that, and you've mentioned so many of the cases that have come up in our awareness in the last couple of decades, I think there's a few different causes. The first, and I think really the most important, is there's a complete failure on the part of the institution to recognize the reality of child sexual abuse. I think that fortunately most Americans don't really appreciate the reality of that kind of victimization because they haven't experienced it. But when it arises, if the institution doesn't really understand this is a child who has been raped by an adult authority figure, and the ramifications of that will be throughout the victim and survivor's life. If they don't really understand the gravity of that, then they will never respond appropriately. And I think if we use the Catholic Church as an example, if the church hierarchy understood what child sexual abuse was, the very first incidents that occurred, there would be a completely different response because it, it is against everything that institution believes in. Mm. Um, so I think that that's the first step. Um, and, and again, a lot of people don't understand the realities because it's graphic and it's horrible and it's painful, but that's the first step is not sugarcoating what it is. And it's rape of a child. Um, so that's, I think the first cause. And everything flows from that. But why institutions? I think there's a couple other factors that are present. Um, certainly the notion of homogeny, right? Many of the institutions that you mentioned, although not all, you have a very homogenous group that is leading them, whether they're all the same um, gender, they're all of the same philosophy, et cetera. And homogeny, um, people then dictate response. And so if in the initial cases, it's not taken seriously or it's perceived as a threat to the institution or whatever the tenor of the response is, that won't be questioned. So I think it's important to have diversity in leadership um, uh, to be able to appreciate the gravity of when these instances arise. The third fact, and please feel free to interrupt me if I talk too much, but the <laughs> third fact I think that is here is hierarchy right, a hierarchical institution. And so in many of the institutions that you mentioned, there is a hierarchy. We certainly see this in the military when we're talking about adult victims. We saw that when those cases were coming to the fore. And I think that that uh, creates some really big problems, both for offender and victim, right? There's that power dynamic that is so often at play where a, a child, as we know, cannot legally consent because they don't have the capacity, but also because they're powerless, right? Mm -hmm. They are helpless in a world in which adults run, uh, uh, run it. But that is also true. That same differential in power exists between the perpetrator and those around them, 
And if you have a hierarchical institution, all of a sudden there's a difference in power of someone who might have a suspicion or who might have an observation or who might be told to handle something in a way that doesn't seem right to them, et cetera. And so hierarchy, I think, is uh, a really big problem here. But uh, besides homogeny and hierarchy, I, and part of hierarchy, of course, is self-preservation, you know, putting the institution first uh, before individuals. Um, while we sort of glorify that, right, um, as a selfless act, anything taken to its extreme can be a problem. But the last piece, which I think is really essential, is the culture, the in internal culture. Now, of course, no, hopefully, no institution exists which has a culture of accepting child sexual abuse. I don't think that's true at any of the institutions that you listed. But I think that um, the culture is one that perhaps doesn't prioritize a safe childhood over everything else, over the institution, over the professional success, over the comfort. And so what that means is uh, the preventative measures are not implemented and executed because the most important thing is not protecting children. It's other things. And then when prevention fails, um, the reporting is not in place, the open dialogue is not in place, and you have a culture in which people reporting concerns, having a dialogue, not doing what their superiors tell them is not encouraged but rather discouraged. And that, I think, is a really big problem. We have to alter the culture of institutions where anyone who voices a concern about protecting children is held out as a hero, even if they're mistaken, rather than someone who is threatening the institution or is causing problems or is overreacting, et cetera. So one of the things that really struck me when you were talking about these things is that, you, you know, almost any institution could fall into this pattern, it seems to me, mm -hmm. um, not just the ones that we've talked about are extremely large institutions, but it's something that, that really even very small institutions need to be careful about because these kinds of things, this you know, failure to apprehend the nature of childhood sexual abuse, the homogeneity of the group, the fact that there's an internal hierarchy, and the overarching culture, which may be focused on other kinds of missions and other kinds of things, it seems to me that you know everything from a daycare center or a school or any other institution could also be susceptible to those things. I think that you're quite right, and I think that that is really an important point. Um, if I think what we have learned in the last few decades is that there's a whole dimension to child abuse that we've not really been attuned to. And just like when we started talking about child sexual abuse, we started really bringing it into the light. We discovered as a culture all these different aspects to it, right? All these things mm -hmm. that we're not, we weren't aware of as a society. I think we're going through a, another example of that where we're now realizing, oh, it's not just stra stranger danger, right? right? You know, we realized <laughs> when we look back at our history, oh, what does the research tell us? It is um, often a uh, offender who is close or has access to a victim. Well, similarly now, we're seeing, oh, it's not just an individual perpetrator, individual victim problem. There are these institutional components that are possible risk factors we need to be aware of. And I would say to you, again, going back to my 
main point, which is about a culture shift, we need to have all institutions prioritize the protection of children from this um, at the center. And again, that may sound non-controversial, but it's difficult, right? What, organiz what daycare wants to put out front and center what they are doing to prevent child sexual abuse? They don't want to do that because that's um, perceived as a topic that you don't even want to introduce, right, to right. folks. You don't even want to acknowledge mm. it's a real problem. But if we all do it, then people will see it as a safety mechanism and not as something that is uncomfortable. To give a great example, we prepare and we understand that there could be a fire, right, in any school building. So what do we do? We train the children how to respond to that, how to prevent it. We train the faculty how to do it. No one would ever challenge the training and awareness and prevention measures in place to prevent a fire. And that's because people recognize, hey, this is a building. There's hundreds of children here. Without question, we need to be ready for this. We need to treat child sexual abuse the same way. That's not to say when you have a great fire prevention program that your building is any more vulnerable right. than another building, but we do it. We need to treat child sexual abuse and child physical abuse the same way. Let me ask you something, Mary. One of the things that I think many folks struggle with in some of these cases is not just that it happens in a variety of institutions. So we see the same patterns coming out of multiple types of organizations and those sorts of things, but that in some organizations, you also see repeated instances. And, you know, I, I'm thinking here, uh, the Boy Scouts have been recently uh, under fire in that regard. I think if you look at the Catholic Church, you know, obviously there was the, the wave of the first sort of child sexual abuse scandals more than a decade ago. There were reforms. Now this, there's this latest wave. What do you think drives that um, sort of repeated uh, instance of it? Because I think many people feel even more upset and disappointed that there would be a, a, a repeated instance, you know, not a repeated isolated individual case, of course, but, but really a continuing uncovering or, or whatever the nature of that may be than even the initial scandal. I think that that is so accurate uh, a point to make. And I think when I talk about specifically um, the problems within the Catholic Church, because I think that is the most stark example of in 2002, people learned of this terrible um, sexual abuse that had occurred. That was shocking. Um, but I think the problems we are having uh, now and after basically the Pennsylvania grand jury report in particular, this problem is not so much a child sexual abuse problem as it is a cover-up problem. Mm. So I think that when we talk about that institution, you're quite right. There's a few problems going on there. So why does that happen? Well, I think it happens um, for all the reasons that I mentioned, but it's really underscored. So for example, if after 2002, the church hierarchy really understood what child sexual abuse was, there would not have been further cover-ups. Um, similarly, the homogeny is obvious, but the hierarchy in the Catholic Church, I think it is, um, and I say this, frankly, as a practicing Catholic, I think that's important to mention, um, but so I, I say it with knowledge of the structure of the church, 
there's not only hierarchy, but there's obedience. And those are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but I think that um, if if there's a self-preservation piece and if there's obedience, that creates a significant problem. Um, so I think that, that, and again, I think the culture, while there were measures taken for protection, uh, because those making the decisions were isolated and had absolute power with no checks and balances, when there are bad decisions made to preserve the institution, um, th there's no stopping that. Um, and I think so you're quite right. We have to look at this problem in terms of how do we prevent child sexual abuse? And then when prevention fails, how do we have accountability and transparency? And that was what was lacking in, the, uh, in these organizations that had one scandal and then a scandal later. There was not authentic accountability and there was not authentic transparency um, to prevent a second wave. One of the things that really struck me in what you were talking about around transparency and accountability is just something that I noticed across many of these institutions, which seemed to be a reluctance to really um, apply consequences, you know, to apply mm -hmm. serious consequences or even serious deterrence or punishments that they themselves had the power to levy whether that was, you know, terminating a person from their job or in the case of the church, it's a different process, of course, um, to lay aside someone or something else. And what do you think that reluctance is at its heart about? Because I think for people who are outsiders to the various institutions, it's hard to understand. And it's an additional reason for this ire. People think, well, why in the world would you not, you know, and then now fill in the blank? I think that um, there's a lot of factors at play here, um, and I think you've highlighted some very real, have um, expounded this problem. I would say to you, and I realize I sound like a broken record, and I don't mean to, but again, I think the first obstacle to that was not recognizing the seriousness of what was occurring. Because I think you're right, if, you, if, if the decision maker is aware of what that child actually experienced in a room with a perpetrator, if they really understood it, then there would be swift action, right? But by not really understanding it, perhaps willfully or not, then everything gets a little bit less clear. I think also, though, the problem is this notion, again, of um, homogeny, right? So. Um, certain, if you think about some of the religious organizations, and there are many who've gone through this, they're looking at these perpetrators. They're not strangers. They are people that they know. They are what, what you know and what your listeners know from working in this field. We know that perpetrators of this kind of abuse are not the men in trench coats hiding in the bushes that we see on television. They're, in fact, people who will spend are patient groomers who gain access to children based on who they are, how they behave, et cetera. So when an institution sees an allegation against someone like that, they are hesitant to believe it or they recognize that person as part of their society. Hmm. So they are reluctant to respond to them in the same way they would if it was a stranger. So I think that there's that part of it um, as, as well, which comes into, into play. And then I think there is a 
misguided view that if this comes out in public, the institution which does good works will be threatened or those good works will be threatened, which is understandable, of course, right? But we see that in all the institutions that you've talked about, whether they're faith-based institutions that do tremendously good work, right? Or an education institution that can't afford that loss of reputation or the a scouting or a children's group that serves a lot of children in a very positive ways, they justify a failure to respond correctly with, well, the institution will suffer. And that's just simply got to flip. We have to put the children first. And I would say, ironically, what has happened with those institutions that were motivated in saving the institution, it's actually caused more harm not to hold mm-hmm. them accountable. I agree. Um, and, I'd be, and I'd be remiss if I didn't also include lawyers in on this. Mm. <laughs> um, as a law professor, it yeah. pains me to say this, but when if you are only seeking the counsel of a lawyer who is paid to protect the assets of an institution, they will respond to a case of an allegation as a personnel matter, hmm. right? Um, right? And certainly when we're talking about religious institutions, I do ask the question, what were the lawyers doing in those situations? In my view, well, of course, a lawyer should zealously represent their client. Of course, that is their duty. Um, they also have to appreciate who the client is, and um, they also have to appreciate what's right and wrong. And a lawyer is never uh, 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 authorized to do something that is unethical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and and I think that that's a, an, an obstacle as well. You go to the lawyer, and it gets treated like a personnel problem or a settlement problem. Um, that's not the right framing. It should always be treated first and foremost as a criminal problem. And then the other things can flow from that. Let me ask you this, too, because I think you raised a really good point about the way in which institutions can focus on reputational risk and also sort of self-protection around that. But one of the interesting things that has been, um, I guess, curious to me is if you look at um, universities, for example, often if they have one of these large, horrendous scandals not only do they typically learn something from it eventually when it comes to light, but other um, colleges and universities, other institutions take a look at that, and you often see this flurry of activity in terms of them reviewing their own policies and procedures because no one really wants to have a scandal like that at their institution. On the other hand, when you look at faith communities, and I think you could sort of look across the board at all the ones who, who have had attention lately, it seems to me that one of the, the issues that keeps cropping up, and I wonder if it's kind of a, um, its own kind of obstacle to, to solving this problem is the sort of problem of forgiveness, the sort of theological underpinning of um, the need to forgive the perpetrator in some way that seems to get in the way of consequences. I think that uh, the question you raise is really played out when one looks at some of the documents in the grand jury report out of Pennsylvania. Because when reading some of the documents that are within that report, you see very much what you're talking about, um, this, this, this um, theme of forgiveness 
or gratitude for um, other aspects of a perpetrator's life, service to the church, etc. And while I haven't seen the documents in some of these other faith-based cases, I would suspect you'd see the same thing. And I think that um, that comes into play um, in the same way when we pick jurors, right? When we pick jurors, um, one of the things that is that is fair to ask a juror about is are they able to sit in judgment of another person and based on the law and the evidence, convict if necessary. And some jurors will tell you that they cannot and they don't sit on juries. And I think that that speaks to drawing a distinction between theological, Christian, moral choices about forgiveness and redemption and legal, civil and criminal decisions that have to be made about guilt or innocence. Those are separate. And forgiveness is for the churches and for each individual, but accountability is for uh, society. And so I think that you're right that those doctrines can be abused in ways that prevent accountability and transparency, um, and they shouldn't be. And one thing that we've seen, I think, in the wake of the most recent revelations about the Catholic Church hierarchy is a real emphasis on people coming forward. Um, many dioceses and religious orders have released lists, and usually accompanied with that is an encouragement that people come forward and go to law enforcement. And um, I think that recognizing there's a, there's a lane for churches and there's a lane for law enforcement, and everyone should stay in their own lane and take care of their aspect, but in no way impede the other lane is something that needs all institutions need to be reminded of because you're quite right, it can be abused. And if I could make one other point, this is very consistent with what we know about, about offenders, right? Mm -hmm. They will take beliefs, doctrines, elements of the culture, elements of the community, and twist them to their advantage. Um, we see, and so it should be perhaps no surprise to us that that continues on an institutional level, um, using doctrines, perverting them a little bit to justify a certain action. Well, and it's always interesting that the emphasis seems to be on forgiveness instead of repentance for wrongdoing as well. <laughs> it's like, I'd like to see a little more focus on that if we're going to talk about the spiritual dimension at all. But related to that, I'm wondering, you know, um, I think it's been very interesting to see some of the more recent statements out of the Vatican and uh, Pope Francis's comments on this and the seriousness with which he's taking this, the um, recent actions to uh, defrock certain individuals over this. But one of the things that really struck me was, I mean, of course, he's a theologian and the head of the church, so it, it makes sense that he would talk about this also in regard to a spiritual dimension. But one of the things that he placed some emphasis on was the need to also view this through a spiritual lens and um, sort of the, the belief that this can't be solved entirely without taking the spiritual dimension into account. And I wonder if you think that that's um, true or if you think that it may, you know, based on your prior comments, it may muddy the water a little bit as it relates to accountability. I think 
that it all depends what you mean by um, this can't be solved, correct? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm, right. So, um, and, and I'm not picking at all on your question. Um, I, think the, I think it's a great question. But um, as a prosecutor, a former prosecutor, and now an academic, I'd like to say a lot, we cannot prosecute our way out of any social problem, right? We, we can't, through criminal prosecution, we cannot solve child sexual abuse. We cannot solve child sexual exploitation. We cannot solve domestic violence, et cetera. It is part of the solution. And there are roles in responding to these social ills for so many parts of society, right? The criminal law, the civil law, faith-based groups, education, cultural shifts, um, and many others. Um, So when we say, so when I hear people say prosecution, and I realize this is not what you're saying in your question, but often people will suggest we downplay the criminal side of things because that won't solve the problem. It was never intended to. It was intended to be part of it. So when I hear um, the, the Holy See talk about there's a role for faith and forgiveness within um, the social problem of child sexual abuse, I think that's correct. I don't think the Holy See is saying now, instead of these other things, I think it is saying in addition to. And I think that that is correct, Um, absolutely correct. Um, Look, as a former prosecutor, when when one wins a trial, it is not a moment of joy. Mm. It's a moment of sadness in some ways because what that means is 12 people in the community have agreed that someone has done something terrible to a person. Um, it is a necessary part of our response. It is, I would say, an essential part of our response. It is not the only response. You know, when I think about these various institutions that we've been talking about, one of the things that struck me is that I think in early stages of their various crises and scandals, you know, it seemed to me that there was a reluctance to reach out to and rely on subject matter experts or folks who are outside of the immediate um, community for help. And now it feels to me like there's more um, openness to that, a, a red, um, an increasing readiness to recognize that while you might be an expert at you know, leading an academic institution, for example, or leading a faith community, that that doesn't necessarily make you an expert in child abuse prevention and intervention. And I'm wondering, you know, is that just my own Pollyanna uh, view of it? Or are you finding as you're thinking and writing and, and talking to folks that that's your experience as well, that there's more outreach to people who have expertise in responding to these matters? I think um, the, I think you're quite right. I don't think it's Pollyanna. I think there is more um, willingness to reach out to professionals and to survivors. And I think you saw that at the Holy Sees Conference, and I think you see that um, even just throughout the government. I was just reading a, a, a request for proposals, which talked about how it would give um, uh, it would look favorably um, upon any um, research that was done that involved survivors that listened to their voice. Mm. Um, So I think that that is happening and that that is a wonderful thing. 
um, to see, and that informs us all, because again, I think it goes back to showing us the reality of what child sexual abuse is as, as it occurs, and what these survivors carry with them throughout the rest of their life, and that is, I think, happening and important. I think the question, the yet to be determined is, will they be listened to? So to go to your example of the church and the Holy See, uh, Marie Collins, who is a survivor out of Ireland, very well recognized, etc., she was placed on the um, Pope Francis's first uh, committee to sort of look at this issue. And um, she eventually, after a few years, resigned because she just felt as though there was not the support for the work that they were doing on their commission within the bureaucracy of the church structure. And um, so I think that, yes, there is much more willingness to listen to survivors and victims, but the next step to that is to execute what they're telling us. And I think that's what we wait to see if it will happen or not. You bring up a good point, and, and I'm so glad you brought up survivors, because that is one of the things that I think, particularly within faith communities, it's um, it's difficult uh, to wrestle with how to do justice to their suffering. And I think that one of the questions that I have about that, you know, for child victims, when they come forward in this country, there's a system of care, of care that's available to them. And so if they're disclosing something that happened to them, whether recently or not, they are most likely going to have access to the services of a children's advocacy center. There's going to be a robust investigation. They're going to have access to victim advocates. If they need medical care, mental health care, it's going to be available to them. And for these adult survivors, uh, there's no system of care that's universally available in that way. And um, in many cases, the person who's wronged them is now deceased. And so there may not ever be any justice in that sense either. And I'm just wondering, as you've been thinking about this um, yourself and wrestling with it, what, you know, how should faith communities approach um, helping make survivors whole? And how should society at large, beyond just saying, okay, that's, the such-and-such church's job to take care of that. How should we, you know, as a larger society, also address and deal with the wrongs that have been done to these individuals and helping them be whole? Well, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think one of it is we know the answer from the research, right, Um, in terms of what are the effects of being victimized in child sexual abuse. There are lifelong effects. We know the risk factors and your listeners, and some. this is a lot due thanks to the great work of child advocacy centers, right? We know what these folks carry with them into adulthood. And again, anybody interested in this issue should read the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report because there are so many accountings from adults that are so powerful in terms of the repercussions this kind of victimization has throughout one's life. We are aware of that. So what is the society are we going to do to respond to that? And I think that um, you're quite right. The institutions responsible for it have to understand that they need to put in place um, the services for that. 
But you're quite right. We can't just leave that to the institutions because, again, they don't have the capacity. So I think that really comes back to what is appropriate care for someone who's been victimized. Hmm. Well, if one of these offenders burned down a house, that would be easy. We'd say they need to build them a new house. They need to pay for that new house. And if they can't do it, we as a society will have a victim fund that will do it, right? But when the scars are not as visible, I think we as a society have a hesitancy to understand that they need to be attended to just as much. And so I think your question touches on, you know, access to mental health through insurance, you know, access um, touches on what appropriate settlements look like, what appropriate criminal um, and civil uh, resolutions look like. And they all need to include uh, that kind of care. And that's going to go on maybe for the rest of the person's life. So, you know, when you think about the role of children's advocacy centers and other child abuse professionals, one of the things that's been very interesting in our field has been the number of, the amount of outreach from adult survivors to our centers, actually, because often it's not, they're the most uh, readily identifiable resource around child abuse in a local community. And so while an adult survivor may not think that they are going to be able to access services directly through them, they may well reach out to them. Um, uh, just to find out if they even know of available resources or those kinds of things. So when you're thinking about the role of a CAC as a hub in a community for services to kids, you know, what should we be thinking about? What should other child abuse professionals in areas that don't have children's advocacy centers, for example, be thinking of about, you know, our role uh, as it relates to this and our role in the community? What should we be doing to help first of all, prevent this from occurring in the first place, and secondly, to respond to it when it does? Um, I think that uh, there's a few things, but I, I have to be honest with you. I hesitate to list them because CACs are doing such important work, and, and you all are already stretched very thin. Um, but if let's assume an unlimited amount of funding, right? Um, <laughs> I'd love to assume I that. Think you're quite... Right. Let's just all live in that uh, world for a second. But I think CAC centers and other child abuse professionals, you're quite right, have got to be part of the prevention. And that's education, 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 education for the children, education for the professionals, education for the parents. And it's really got to be not comfortable. Child sexual abuse isn't comfortable. It is ugly, ugly, ugly. And we can, in polite company, to shield people from that, understandably so. But if parents really understood what that that if they gave their put their children at risk, what could happen, what that would look like, no parent would do that. So giving them a clear understanding of that um, uh, is essential. So I would say all child abuse professionals need to um, take part in sharing their knowledge of what you've learned, what it looks like to every part of society that we can. Um, I think that is really an essential first step. But I think you hit on, you're quite right, sort of the other end of the spectrum. I can only speak anecdotally as someone who, as a faculty member at the Catholic University of America, and is trying to be involved in responding to the crisis that the Catholic Church hierarchy is going through. I have been privileged to be on a number of panels where we have gotten other faculty members and experts to discuss these issues. And we've gone around the country. And what has really struck me, first of all, are the number of people who come to these 
conversations. Um, it's amazing to me. Hundreds of people come and they want to discuss this because they care. Um, but the not the amount of pain in the room, mm. people either feeling betrayed because they are adult victims and they're now realizing um, it's much more common than they ever imagined, or in, in the case of the examples I'm giving you, they're members of faith communities who want to be part of the solution and they're in pain because they cannot believe their institution, um, their leadership has failed them in this way. And... Um, and I think that responding to those adults, victims, who I think are now, for some, the very first time being able to speak about it, we've got to be there to support them. And so you're quite right. In unlimited funding, child advocacy centers, child abuse professionals sort of expanding their reach to deal with adult survivors is an important component to healing. When you think about where we are in this moment where, you you know, we're at a particular pain point again, um, there's a large media spotlight again on these issues. Um, Do you feel hopeful that as a society we're learning something um, and and not likely to continue to um, repeat these things ad infinitum? Or do you feel discouraged as you think about it? I would say I feel hopeful because I think, again, the curtain's pulled back. And you have much greater success in conquering these societal ills when you're actually fighting the actual ill as opposed <laughs> to your perception of it, right? Yeah, yeah. So in, in that sense, I think that no one could deny, like you had raised the question earlier, what about a smaller institution? If I'm running a smaller institution now, I'm all of a sudden, yes, putting measures in place to prevent me from being like this institution. I can't deny this could happen to mm-hmm. me because it so clearly happened to these others. So in that sense, I'm optimistic. Um, and we are hearing a lot of right of the right things from all of these institutional leadership, whether it's the Catholic Church hierarchy or it is the Boy Scouts, or it is um, any of these educational institutions. Now, some it took longer than others, right? Um, But we're hearing the right things. But I am cautiously optimistic, because when the crisis is over, self-preservation can still kick in. And the fact of the matter is, you have to be willing to uh, sacrifice the institution and hold up as heroes people who report or raise questions, even if that means the institution will suffer. And we're going to have to see if that's really going to happen. Um, and people have to be willing to risk being held accountable. We'll see if that ha- happens. I'm, I'm hopeful it will happen. I mean, if you think about the field of education, right, um, teachers nowadays understand The doors to their classrooms are always open. They always have windows on their doors. They understand they live in a world in which they are working with minors and have to always be transparent because they understand it is a risk in their profession that they could be accused of doing something that they didn't do. And yet still people do do the profession because they just understand they have to operate under different circumstances now than perhaps 50 years ago when we weren't thinking about these things. And that's a sad reality, 
but it's probably also a good reality. Children are safer. With these institutions, that's where they are at. Are they ready to make that pivot and understand they're going to operate in a new reality where if in doubt, report and be transparent and understand your operations are going to be disrupted perhaps because this is a priority now? Um, or are they going to um, flip back into self-preservation? We'll see. A lot of the ideas that are out there are essential, but the most important aspect of it is they have to execute what they are told to do by the experts. And that's what didn't happen in 2002 after the um, first wave of scandal in the Catholic Church hierarchy. Um, there was the, there was the Child Protection Charter had a lot of things in it. Some dioceses really were aggressive about it, but others apparently were not. And everyone has to execute it. And now we're at a place where people in the hierarchy or people in leadership have to be held accountable. Everyone is saying that now, but we're going to have to see if that is executed. Well, Mary, I'm looking forward to the day that the next time we talk, we'll be talking about some of those institutional heroes that you mentioned. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us. And I know our listeners appreciate really hearing your thoughts about this. Is there any question that I didn't ask you that I should have? Um, there's not a question you didn't ask me that you should have. But um, I just want to point out one other uh, thing when we talk about institutions. Um, we in the United States in particular, I think, we know how to handle an institutional crisis. And if you think about um, uh, other institutional crisis, crises, which may have nothing to do with this, um, you think about maybe a company that discovers fraud inside of financial fraud. Or even if you think about something like the Dallas Mavericks discovering there was a culture of sexual harassment or abuse. Or even if you look at Penn State, um, uh, in the wake of all of the disclosures, they knew what to do. They hired an outside organization to do a top-to-bottom review to look at the scope of the problem, the causes of the problem, and the climate within the institution that facilitated that problem. And those folks were not responsible, were not in the chain of command. They reported only to the top to say, this is what you need to do. And then those organizations executed that plan. This is no different. It is sexual abuse, but it's an institutional problem. And if it's a man-made institutional problem, we already know how to respond to it. It's just painful. Um, it involves structural changes, and it involves procedural changes that have to execute a climate of accountability and transparency. Um, the solution we know we have to have the backbone, and these institutions have to have the backbone to do it. And hopefully, you're right, we'll be celebrating these model institutions next time we speak. The only other thing I wanted to add for you and your listeners is just to thank you all for your important work. Um, child Advocacy Centers altered the landscape of child abuse investigation and prosecution and has saved thousands of children by having cases be able to go forward that couldn't go forward before. And uh, for your listeners taking the time out to sort of delve into these issues, I just think speaks to why we can be optimistic, because there are so many people out there that put children first.
Thank you for listening to One in Ten. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode where we'll talk to Dr. Nat Kendall-Taylor about the cultural frames that keep us from solving the problem of child abuse. For more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of children's advocacy centers, visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.